We are in John 19 still. We have a few more weeks to go yet. And uh, today we have gotten to the pivotal passage of probably all Christian theology. The crucifixion of Jesus. John 19, verses 17 through 22. I encourage you to look that up in your Bibles, or you can read along in the outline. Uh, it's kind of divided up in the outline, but it'd be good to have your Bibles open to John 19. John 19, 17 through 22. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read... Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to this passage, which should be so dear to us, and yet so often we read over it as it has become familiar. We pray that we might learn anew what you mean here, that you might open our hearts and minds to hear from you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The stories that always seem to move us most deeply are those in which someone faces irreversible loss or even death in order to bring life to someone else. There's almost no popular movie that doesn't have some version of this as its theme. One famous example, although very much older and I doubt many people here have seen this movie, is the movie Angels, Angels with Dirty Faces. It's a James Cagney movie. So you're going way back. How many have seen Angels with Dirty Faces? One, two, about seven, eight. Okay, not too many. So you all want to run out to the video store and rent it. And... Anyway, it starred James Cagney. And he played a character named Rocky Sullivan, the original Rocky. And uh, Rocky Sullivan was a celebrity criminal. And he's the idol of all the young juvenile delinquents in the city. And he is in prison now. And he is about to go to the electric chair. And the night before his execution, he's visited by his boyhood friend, Jerry. He's played by Pat O'Brien. And Jerry is now a priest. It's sort of old, typical, you know, the criminal and the priest, boyhood friends. Seen that in a number of movies. 
And he's trying to save inner city kids from a life of crime. So Jerry goes to see Rocky in prison the night before his execution, and he makes a shocking request. He says it is the only way that the kids that he's working with can be turned away from the destructive path that they've chosen. He says this to Rocky. He says, I want you to let them down. You see, you've been a hero to these kids and hundreds of others all through your life, and now you're gonna be a glorified hero in death. And I wanna prevent that, Rocky. They've got to despise your memory. They've got to be ashamed of you. As you can imagine, Rocky is just incredulous. He's just stunned. He says, you asking me to pull an act? Turn yellow? So those kids will think I'm no good? You ask me to throw away the only thing I've got left? You ask me to crawl on my belly the last thing I do in life? Nothing doing. You're asking too much. You want to help those kids, you got to think about some other way. Jerry is calling Rocky to do the great reversal, the substitutionary sacrifice. And if you hold on to your dignity, he says, then all these kids will die in shame. But if you die in shame and relinquish your glory, these boys' lives can be saved. The only way to release his boys from their hero worship. And Rocky Sullivan refuses. The next morning, they get him up. He has his last meal. He walks to the execution chamber. And as he's coming up to the chamber, suddenly, he just begins to cry out for mercy in this just cowardly hysterics, falls to his knees, just begging as they sort of are dragging him into the execution chamber. And he's just screaming and crying. And he dies in humiliation, making the ultimate sacrifice. And people who see that scene see that he actually does, at the very end, what his friend asked him to do, are always stunned. He's been totally defiant up to that point, and right at the last second, he gives in. And it just, he begs for mercy, looks totally cowardly, he's crying, and he just puts on this huge show. And if you've ever seen it, it will leave you shaken. It makes you wanna live your life differently such as the life-affecting power of story. And it's moving. Yes, but the gospel goes one better. See, these stories of sacrifice affect us emotionally, very much so. You usually come away resolving to live more courageously and more unselfishly. However, it's rare that we actually follow through on those resolutions. Those stories move my emotions and prick my conscience, but the basic patterns of my heart remain unchanged. The gospel, however, is not just a fictional story about someone else. It's a true story about us. We're actually in it. We are those delinquent boys. And to save us, Jesus gave up something infinitely greater than being a celebrity. 
In addition, Jesus has come to us in our prison and despite our unwillingness to be saved, has taken our place. Observing stories from the outside can emotionally affect us. But when we realize we're actually inside Jesus' story, that can change us. And the point of change for us, the point of impact for us, is at the cross. That's where we discover just how much Jesus loves us. That is where we realize that we have a God who would let himself be nailed to a cross for those he loved. He would dare die there for those he loved, for us. So let's take a look at this cross, at this crucifixion. There's no fill in the blanks today. It's just very simple. Verse 17 So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, which you might see in some versions, the Latin Calvary. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now at the end of last week's passage, John 19 verse 16, we read, So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. The trial of Jesus would have formally concluded with Pilate pronouncing uh, the formula, Ibis ad crucem, you will go to the cross. Jesus would then immediately fall into the custody of what is essentially an execution squad of four Roman soldiers. The condemned man was forced to carry not normally the entire cross, but the horizontal cross piece called the patibulum. And it's likely since crucifixions were relatively common in that place in that time, the upright posts were permanently in place at the execution site just outside the main highway, uh, outside uh, the city on the main highway. And as Jesus sets off on that last terrible journey, he's been condemned to death. He's been handed, probably uh, tied to him, this heavy wooden crossbeam. They say it would weigh anywhere between 40 to 100 pounds. And he's carrying this beam. And we witness a reenactment of a scene on Mount Moriah, the same hill on which the city of Jerusalem now stood, when another son carried wood for an altar on which he was to be secured as a victim. We have to go all the way back to Genesis 22. And you can read this along with me. Then Abraham said to his young son, to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy, Isaac, We'll go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He hands the wood to Isaac. Isaac has to carry the wood for the fire, not knowing that he's going to be put on that to the top of the hill. And he, Abraham, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Tremendous acts of faith there. You notice that Abraham says, I and the boy will go and worship and come again to you. And when Isaac asks him, he says, the Lord will provide. There's tremendous faith here. But he does what the Lord tells him to do. And of course, as we know the rest of the story, God spares Isaac, provides a ram for the sacrifice. Isaac is what we call a type of Christ, a foreshadowing in the Old Testament of the New Testament. Isaac is a picture of Christ because he was to be given as a sacrifice, just as Christ was. And as we see here in Genesis 22, Isaac bore his own wood to his near execution, just as Jesus bore his cross to his execution. As we go through the rest of John 19, we're going to see numerous allusions and direct references to the Old Testament and see prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled in this chapter. Now the Romans, never blind to the deterrent value of punishment, usually prescribed some sort of roundabout route to the execution site. And they would have a placard announcing the crime carried out in the front. And certainly the journey would have been profoundly draining for Jesus following the scourging that he had gone through. And Matthew tells us uh, of Jesus collapsing under the crossbeam and requiring assistance to reach the site and how they grabbed Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross the rest of the way. John doesn't mention that. The place of the execution is named Golgotha, the place of a skull known in Latin more commonly to us as Calvary. Probably a small hill at the entrance of the city. And verse 18 says, there they crucified him. Now in crucifixion, the victim is laid out on the crossbeam and fixed to it by iron nails driven through the top of his wrists. The cross was then raised and uh, sort of dropped down into a hole. And then the feet, placed one over the other, were nailed below. And the victim was simply left to die. This could take days. It was a long, slow, agonizing death, ended finally by suffocation. Because the victim would have to push up with his feet in order to relieve the constriction of his chest. His constriction would come in on the lungs, couldn't breathe. So he'd have to push up with his feet, which are nailed to the cross, to get up enough to open the airway so he could breathe. And he could only do that so long until he finally mercifully dies. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It was developed by the Carthaginians and perfected by the Romans. In fact, we know just from history that 
There was probably three or four different types of crosses that they used. They were um, quite flexible in their ability to adapt to whatever was available. Josephus refers to it as the most wretched of deaths. Cicero called it a most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word, for there is none fit to describe it. So terrible was crucifixion that no Roman was permitted to undergo it, however heinous his crime. And in undergoing this, Christ expresses how much he loves us. C.S. Lewis described it like this, as only he can. The buzzing cloud of flies about the cross, the flayed back pressed against the uneven stake, the nails driven through the medial nerves, the repeated torture of back and arms as it is time after time, for breath's sake, hitched up. If I may dare the biological image, God is a host who deliberately creates his own parasites, causes us to be that we may exploit and take advantage of him. Herein is love. This is the diagram of love himself, the inventor of all loves. From C.S. Lewis' book, The Four Loves. We see this diagram of love and its cost. The Son of God hanging by his arms, his muscles unable to respond. And Jesus beginning agonized prayers as he struggles upward for breath and slumped downward again in exhaustion. He fights to raise himself just to get one breath. And for several hours, Jesus slowly moves up and down the cross, inches at a time, snatching another breath, scraping his raw back with every move. Finally, the carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps subside, and he's intermittently pushing himself up to exhale and try to gain a little more oxygen. And finally, just can't do it anymore. The legacy of death by crucifixion is still with us in the word excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. C.S. Lewis says this is the diagram of love. Yet the true depth and cost of this love resides in Christ's willingness to bear our sins, to suffer separation from his Father. We have to sort of passionately weave this truth into the fibers of our being. Graham Greene is a great author in his novel, The Heart of the Matter. He describes one of the principal characters of police lieutenant named Scobie. Lieutenant Scobie is listening in on this very dispassionate conversation about the suicide of an acquaintance. And the men are discussing whether their deceased friend chose the best way to kill himself. And as Lieutenant Scobie is examining the man's few belongings and he's listening to this conversation, he says to himself very quietly, through 2,000 years, we have discussed Christ's agony in just this disinterested way. 
And Lieutenant Scobie is right. It is so easy to become desensitized to this reality. We hear repeated readings of the crucifixion account. If you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard this over and over and over again. We daily watch scenes of real violence, at least on television. And we watch those scenes sometimes as we pass the popcorn, the ice cream, perhaps even the potatoes and gravy. And as Christians, we have to steel ourselves against becoming desensitized. Christ passion was real. And it's true, we shouldn't be overcome. We shouldn't go to the other extreme with this morbid preoccupation with the gore of the cross. But Christ's agony must never become a matter of dispassionate interest. Looking at the cross should never become a mere clinical exam. His physical sufferings have always been a window through which we see his greater agony as he bore the penalty for our sin. However, I find it very interesting that this description of crucifixion appears nowhere in the Bible. Not one of the gospel writers tries to arouse our pity or play with our emotions, unlike some preachers. They all content themselves with just a simple statement of the facts. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what happened. It doesn't describe the torture. It doesn't describe the suffering. It just matter-of-factly says that it happened. And I think it's for a reason. I think it's while we shouldn't lose, you know, become sort of dispassionate or uh, disinterested in what Jesus has gone through, we're not to focus just on that. I think there's a reason that God doesn't go into all this great detail. Because amid this unfolding horror, we can't lose sight of the ultimate perspective, which is victory, not defeat. Jesus has consistently struck this note. Throughout John, he said his death will be a lifting up, an elevation, an exaltation on the cross. That as he is lifted up, he'll be elevated, exalted, as well as identified. And we've seen this numerous times, John 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 8, 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, starting at verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John is careful to tell us that there's going to be two other people crucified with the Savior. We see it in verse 18. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. If the cross is a diagram of his love, as C.S. Lewis says, then the positioning of the sidebars, the crosses, on both sides is a diagram of how his love is dispensed to the world. 
The Lord's enemies intend the positioning of the crosses that Jesus would be in the middle and a little bit higher to be a final disgrace. Christ between two convicted robbers as if he were the worst. Instead of being a disgrace, however, that arrangement is a fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 12, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Each of the gospel writers includes this. They all have slightly different facts. You actually need all four gospels to get the full picture of everything that happened. But they all include this because from their point of view, it's important that when Jesus died, he was one with sinful people. He didn't come to just live among the pious. He came to call sinners to repentance. And one of the insults that was hurled at him, if you remember, is that he was a friend of sinners. But for the writers of the Gospels, this isn't an insult. This is an expression of an important truth. Jesus came to save sinners. He died to save them. And the fact that on the cross he hung between people who are obviously sinners graphically illustrates that truth. His death is a death on behalf of sinners. And his position when he died brought that out for those who had eyes to see. The reality was that this wasn't a disgrace, but an overt act of overwhelming love. Not only do we see that Jesus' cross was a diagram of his love, but his cross became his throne. His crucifixion is, in reality, his coronation. His coronation, verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Could a playwright have written a better line for Pilate? Maybe it's me. Is it hot in here? No? It's me. Okay. I'm hot. Ironically, it's not the priestly or the prophetic work of Christ which John is highlighting in his narrative of the crucifixion. It's the kingly role of Christ as the dying Savior which dominates John's account of our Lord's final hours. And I say ironic because John's gospel doesn't feature the kingdom of God. It's not the main theme. Nor does he focus on Christ's uh, claims to be the coming king until chapter 18. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right from the very beginning of their gospels, describe Jesus proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. If you remember, he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist says that, Jesus says that, it's right up front. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the miracles of Christ 
are signs of the kingdom breaking into history. The parables, which are largely absent in John, are parables of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingship of Christ, are written boldly over the first three Gospels. But John's Gospel is remarkable for very few references to this theme until chapter 18. And then in the short space of chapters 18 and 19, the words king and kingdom just explode on the page. (coughs) One of the keys uh, uh, to interpreting the Bible is to look for repetition. And uh, I think as Rich has pointed out, John is full of repetition, which probably means we're slow learners. Um, but the arrest and trial of Jesus before Pilate is full of regal, kingly language. Just a couple quick examples, John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then again, just an example, John 19, verse 15. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. John only mentions the words king and kingdom six times prior to chapter 18. And then those Greek words for king and kingdom appear 16 times in chapters 18 and 19. For 17 chapters, the words king and kingdom are essentially non-existent, very rare in John. And now, all of a sudden, the words just jump out at us. In fact, for the trial and crucifixion narrative, it would seem that Uh, kingship is more important in John's gospel than it is in either Matthew, Mark, or Luke's. And so when we read John's passion narrative, that's what we call this section. That is his account of Christ's trial and death. We need to remember that the kingship of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, is the central importance here. And John certainly doesn't want us to miss the theme. So he gives us all sorts of Clues. You remember during the scourging of Christ, Jesus was given a crown, a crown of thorns. He was given a royal robe, an old faded soldier's crimson robe that's sort of faded to, to purple. He's given the royal uh, honor, hail, king of the Jews, even though they said it mockingly, and the whole coronation was done mockingly. And Jesus was submitted to ridicule and injustice. But if the 19th chapter begins with his mock coronation, it continues with the presentation of the king to his subjects. He's led out in this royal garb to receive the acclamation of his subjects, and they utterly reject him, call for his crucifixion. And then what we have now is a royal procession. It's a coronation route, the road lined with onlookers shouting, clamoring, crying out, pressing for a closer look at the man who would be king at the king who shoulders his cross, at the king who trudges weary steps to his throne. How many of you have ever seen the movie, The Man Who Would Be King? 
Stars Sean Connery and Michael Caine. Very old, not many, handful. If you ever go back and watch it again, it's based on John 19. It's hard to see it if you don't know that, but once you know it and you watch it, you can't miss it. They're looking at this king. He's trudging weary steps to his throne. He, indeed, a king who's carrying his throne on his back. The king who carries his throne outside of the gate, outside of the city wall, till Golgotha. And there the royal procession ends, and the enthronement of the king begins, and he mounts his throne affixed by nails and spikes. And John adds these details over and over again that just further verify uh, John as an eyewitness. You have the matter of the inscription over Jesus' head, the one that's carried in front of him on his journey through the city. Verse 19 tells us that it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it was written in the three great languages of the day, Aramaic, which was a local dialect of Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And the title incensed the Jewish leaders, and they protest to Pilate, verse 21, but for once, Pilate, who can, can't make up his mind, who's always vacillating, is now all of a sudden relentless. And I don't think he's intending necessarily to hold up Jesus. I think he's trying to show contempt towards the priests and the Jews. If this is their king, what does it say of them as a nation? But perhaps, in a small way, it's Pilate's dim, but authentic recognition that in some sense Jesus actually is a king. If you can remember a week earlier we had Palm Sunday it'd go all the way back to John 12. It sent the scene for the events of this coming week and this particular moment. John 12:15 Fear not daughter of Zion behold your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. And then we had the words of Pilate's verdict uh, interpret the crucifixion as John shows it, John 19, verse 14. It's the day of preparation of the Passover. It's about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. In fact, if we look at the context of every New Testament reference to Christ's dominion, we'll see they're accompanied by a reference to his cross. Therefore, nothing but the simple truth that is put on the sign over his head as he hangs there, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And there's some aspects of his kingship I want to bring out that are particularly reflected in this passage. First, he's a hidden king. I mean, if you think about it, if you're there and you're hearing all this, but you're actually watching the scene, imagine yourself in this situation. You've seen Jesus presented. He's beaten and bloody. He looks kind of ridiculous. He's carrying this cross or dragging this cross through the streets. He can barely walk. And then he gets nailed to the cross and put up on the cross. And the claims for his reign, at least on the surface, look like a blatant fraud. Never was a person less kingly or possessed of so little evidence to support his claim than Jesus was at this very moment. You only have to compare, even uh, in a superficial way, the account of all the splendors of Solomon's kingdom back in 1 Kings. And you can see almost this absurdity, this emphasis on Jesus being the king, and yet 
He's beaten and bloody and mocked and he's put on a cross and he sure doesn't look like a king. This doesn't happen to kings. And the Roman soldiers, as they're mockingly uh, bowing before him, sort of epitomize the audacity of this claim. And yet for the evangelists, they speak the truth. Hail, king of the Jews. And from a purely rational standpoint, Jesus' story is one of tragic failure. You can see no God in the cross. Only through the revealing of the Holy Spirit can the victory of the cross be recognized. We have to acknowledge this hiddenness because sometimes we're called to believe not because of, but in spite of what we see. Remember, faith is not a matter of seeing. And to follow Jesus is to take up a cross. And that means there may be times when life circumstances uh, contradict our claims, just as surely as they did for Jesus at Calvary. And yet, despite being a hidden king, we see he's a universal king. And the key here is the three different languages that that sign was written in. It is kingship was proclaimed. And that embraces three very great but different sectors of human experience. It was written in Greek. Greek is the language associated historically with the development of culture, the pursuit of beauty, of form, and thought. And the church hasn't always had a great record when it comes to culture. We've, times we've turned sort of a, a jaundiced eye towards all things artistic and creative. But the world of culture is a world that Christ claims no less than any other world. Human creativity is the gift of him who made all things, who is the most creative. And if creative gifts and instincts are brought to his feet, he will ennoble and enrich them and make them the vehicle of his praise. You know, last summer we got to go to great cathedrals. Huge stained glass windows, windows that are long as uh, probably half this section and would go all the way back to the wall. And at first you look at them because they're pretty, you know, they're bright colors, and you kind of think, wow, that took forever to do that. And but all of a sudden you realize the biblical story is there. The story of the New Testament's on one wall, the story of the Old Testament's on the other. And if you step back from the window, get the big perspective, all of a sudden you're like, these people didn't have a Bible, but they probably knew the Bible better than a lot of us because they read the story every time they walked into the cathedral. That's grace and beauty. And culture used for and by God. The sign was also written in Latin. Latin is the language of government and law and institutions. It was interesting a few years ago when we bought our, uh, our office and condo and uh, we asked uh, Frank Pugh to do some of the legal documents and there was Latin on them. I was like, 21st century. Nobody around here speaks Latin, you know, except for a few homeschoolers who are smarter than the rest of us. But I'm pretty sure at the Loudoun County Courthouse there aren't a whole lot of Latin experts. But there was Latin on there. It's a language of law and of government and of institutions. And too often the church appears marginalized, unwilling to get involved in a messy and sometimes evil world of business 
and politics and power, but Christ claims that world as his own too. And he's able through lives surrendered to his lordship to bring the salt and light of his kingdom to the arenas of public life. It was written in Greek, it was written in Latin, and it was written in Aramaic, which is essentially a dialect, a version of Hebrew. And it's the language of religion in that part of the world. And religion is once again a relatively uh, respectable component in our culture's popular quest for meaning. But the world of religion today is this uh, chaotic pantheon of spiritual ideas and gurus and mediums and mythologies. And Christ claims this world as his own. He alone is the truth. He calls us to acknowledge him and then in his name to seek to summon the lost millions who follow the empty gods of other religious visions to bow the knee before this king who has exalted on a cross. And Jesus still seeks today the realization of that claim. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, all people, all women to myself. And by virtue of his rule from the cross, Christ rightfully makes demands on his followers. First and foremost, he demands that we yield to his lordship, which none of us do naturally. Winston Churchill had uh, many famous one-liners. Um, and he had one that illustrates this perfectly. It was directed to Sir Stafford Cripps, who was one of his political opponents. And one day, as they were in a parliament or someplace, and Cripps was walking by, and Churchill looked at him and said, there, but for the grace of God goes God. <laughs> oh, that was a great line. But that's so true. I mean, that's true for all of us. If not for the constant work of God's grace in our lives, we would assume the lordship of our own lives. And Christ, by virtue of his sacrifice on the cross, demands absolute submission. He demands to live our lives for us and through us, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2. For through the law I died to the law so I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And not only that, he demands that we take up our cross and follow him. And again, the details of the cross are well known to the people of that day. They would have understood what he meant when he said, take up your cross. They would have gotten the symbolism, that idea of dying and dying to self. We see that throughout the Gospels. Matthew 10, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Follow me. Luke 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the demands of the king, we don't do king real well in America. Our whole history is kind of anti-king. Now this language makes a lot more sense if you grew up in Britain or some other country that had a monarchy. But Americans, we kind of rebel against everything and everybody. That's, that's what we do. But this particularly, we have a hard time with king. Priest, not so bad. Prophet's pretty good. But king, nah. -uh. 
It's just part of our, you know, cultural DNA. We don't do king. And that's hard because we're in a religion, a faith, a belief system that says in no uncertain terms, king, deal with it. And then you've got to face king on a cross. And you, you know, there's this contradiction in our head, this paradox we don't fully get. And yet this morning, it's not by accident, we have two crosses up here to remind us. You know, we could have picked lots of other different symbols to represent Christianity, to represent the church, to represent the kingdom. There was a lot of possibilities. We could have chosen the manger, you know, where the baby Jesus was laid, or the carpenter's bench where he worked as a young man in Nazareth, dignifying a manual labor, or the boat from which he taught the crowds in Galilee, or the apron that he wore when washing the apostles' feet would have spoken of his spirit of humble service. There was the stone which was rolled away from the mouth of the tomb would have proclaimed his resurrection. Other possibilities could have been a throne, symbol of sovereignty, which John in his vision of heaven in Revelation saw that Jesus was sharing. We could have picked the, uh, the dove, symbol of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven on the day of Pentecost. And we use to a lesser degree all of those symbols. Any of them would have been suitable as a pointer to some aspect of the ministry of Jesus. But instead, the chosen symbol came to be a cross. Two bars were already a, a cosmic symbol from remote antiquity of the access between heaven and earth. But its choice by Christians has a more specific explanation. We wish to commemorate as central to our understanding of Jesus neither his birth nor his youth, not his teaching or his service, neither his resurrection or his reign or the gift of his spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. Hanging there between heaven and earth, Jesus became the sole reconciling force between God and every person who would ever live. And with his own blood, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and drew us back under the covering of grace. The Apostle Peter would emphasize this again and again, 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Healing through wounding, wholeness through brokenness. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the upside-down kingdom where the king dies for his subjects. At the cross today, if your eyes should happen to fall upon that precious symbol, remember Jesus was here and he was lifted up for you. The gospel is Christ crucified, his finished work on the cross. And to preach the gospel is to publicly portray Christ as crucified. The gospel is not good news primarily of a baby in a manger or a young man at a carpenter's bench or a preacher in the fields of Galilee or even an empty tomb. The gospel concerns Christ upon his cross 
And only when, as Galatians, only when, as Galatians 3, 1 says, before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified is the gospel preached. That's the gospel. Jesus dying on the cross as a substitute for you. And as your substitute, he took all your sins upon himself and then gave you his life and his righteousness. His gospel is simple. It's my life for yours. My righteousness for your sin. Will you take it? There is no other way. And all who will take it said, amen, amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.